Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Jaden, a Puerto Rican college student from New York. And this is, in case you missed it, the history of whiteness and how we teach about race. And listeners, do not fear, Val has not left the podcast, but at the end of last season, Val had mentioned this idea of a student takeover, and here we are, student takeover. Jaden, welcome to the podcast. We're very glad to have you. Thank you, thank you. Tell us a bit about yourself. I am Puerto Rican. I grew up in New York City, and I'm currently an undergrad at Yale University. Um, I study linguistics and education studies, and I absolutely love this podcast, and I jumped at the opportunity to work on it and be here talking with you guys. So I'm, I'm very excited. Yeah, we're very glad to have you. Listeners, you'll be hearing more from Jaden soon, but we wanted to drop into your feeds with a great episode that actually Jaden came across and we're going to listen to that today and then talk a little bit about it. So Jaden, what are we going to hear today? So today we're going to be listening to the history of whiteness and how we teach about race from the Teaching Hard History podcast by Learning for Justice. Yeah, and we're only going to listen to the first half. So we definitely recommend listeners go out. There'll be a link in the show notes and listen to the entire episode. The second half of the episode really talks about kind of the creation of whiteness, how whiteness came to be. And it's fascinating. We talked a bit about it on the podcast when we covered the Seeing White podcast uh, a while back. We'll put a link to that as well. But for this episode, we're just going to talk about the first half. And what's in the first half, Jaden? Right. The first half is um, an interview with Dr. Aisha White, who talks a little bit about early education and how we teach about race specifically to young children. The podcast is, I think, designed for teachers, but certainly super relevant to parents and caregivers. Anybody who sort of interacts with young people, I think, dispels a lot of ideas we have about when is or isn't an appropriate time to talk to kids about race, how we should talk about it and, and those sorts of things. So I'm excited for listeners to get a chance to check it out. Definitely. All right, should we listen? Yes, let's listen. I'm Bethany J, and this is Teaching Hard History. We're a production of Learning for Justice, the education arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center. This season, we're offering a detailed look at how to teach the history of Jim Crow, starting with Reconstruction. In each episode, we explore a different topic, walking you through historical concepts raising questions for discussion, suggesting useful source material, and offering practical classroom exercises. During Jim Crow, whiteness could no longer be defined by freedom from enslavement, and white Americans worked hard to maintain its power in the post-emancipation world. In order to have these conversations in the classroom, it's important to think about the ways we talk with our students, particularly our younger students, about race. So we're going to hear from Aisha White, the director of the Positive Racial Identity Development and Early Education, or PRIDE program, at the University of Pittsburgh. She spoke with my co-host, Hassan Kwame Jeffries, about how to have positive race conversations with your students. I'm so glad that you could join us. Let's get started. excited today to welcome to the podcast Dr. Aisha White, who is the director of Pride, a program at the University of Pittsburgh in the School of Education. And we're going to dig deep and talk about the importance of teaching kids and talking to kids about race and racism and positive 
identity. Dr. White, thank you so much for joining us. It is a pleasure and an honor. Trust me. (laughs) Well, we're excited. We're excited. I've been thinking about this conversation since we began planning this season. So I'm honored that you are with us. I want to begin by asking you to explain to our listeners just what is the PRIDE program at Pitt. Okay, so PRIDE is an acronym for Positive Racial Identity Development in Early Education. And we do that by providing the important adults and young children's lives with the knowledge, resources, and um, skills to actually engage in conversation and activities that do support children's development of a positive racial identity. You know, when I have conversations uh, with folk about the importance of race and racial identity um, and racism in in, in society, uh, you, you get from those who will push back, why focus on race at all? How can we just can't be colorblind? Um, And I'm sure many of our listeners and teachers who want uh, to engage in this work in thoughtful, honest ways hear that as well. Uh, What is your response when, 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 when folks say that to you? My first response is sort of like a gut reaction, which is you're not even being real. You do see color. Mm. But in thinking more about what we do at the Pride program, my response is that the research has shown that when teachers take on this colorblind approach, it can be as damaging as actually being racist towards children. Mm. If you claim that you are colorblind and there are circumstances in a classroom, for example, where a child is harmed racially, what do you do? Because you're not prepared because you've said that nobody has color. I don't see color. Why shouldn't we wait until kids are in middle school or high school, a little bit older, a little bit more mature to talk about these issues? At three months, kids are already noticing skin color differences. Three months old. The research says that three months old, a child will tend to uh, an image that is similar to their primary caregiver's mom and dad. So if mom and dad are white, the child's white, show them pictures of somebody who's white versus somebody who's African-American, they'll tend to the white face. That kind of flips and they'll begin to be a little more um, engaged in looking at images and better able to see at six months. And so they'll tend to a face that is darker. They begin to look longer at the black face now. Uh, and, th- and both of those things are fine because it's just kids actually noticing things. But very quickly that changes. Um, and the research says that by two and a half years old, they're starting to embrace some of the um, ideas and attitudes around race that mm. are common in America. And those are commonly bad. Mm-hmm. And by two and a half, if you ask a child to choose a playmate and you show them a picture of somebody who's the same race or somebody who's a different race, they'll choose the same race. That's that's um, something that happens across the board, whether it's a white child, an indigenous child or a black child. Something happens by three and the majority of children of color begin to prefer white. Mm. Yeah, so by three years old, I think the literature, and it's from Katz and Kafkin, it says that about 70% of the children begin to prefer white. But then mm. it starts to get even worse. And the literature says that by, by the time kids are in kindergarten, they have pretty much absorbed and embraced the prevailing attitudes around race in America. Wow. 
before our kids get to the first grade. All that has already sunk into their consciousness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We just recently in our um, team read an article about both gender and racial bias among four-year-olds who they all had a bias against black boys by four years old. So they're already ex- expressing these biases um, even before kindergarten. So, you know, that's a reason to not wait. Why would you not help a child understand something that causes so much harm to so many people in the country? And if you're going to help your child understand other things and help them be, you know, better prepared to get along with other people and that sort of thing, then why would you not help them understand race? Well, we can understand racial identity. We see it. We can identify it. What do you all mean by positive racial identity? What is positive racial identity, especially when it comes to uh, black children? Mm -hmm. So for black children, the great fear is that they will develop uh, ideas of racial inferiority. Children can easily develop negative attitudes um, towards their race based on what they see and hear in America. And so what we want to do is counter that. We're not able to prevent them from being uh, impacted by it, but we can prevent the level of impact. So building capacity in children to deflect those messages that they receive, because you can't stop them. You can't shield them from getting the messages. So when they have a positive racial identity, they feel okay with their skin color. They don't wish that they were a different skin color. They feel okay with their hair texture, which is a really big issue with black girls. They feel good about their history because it's full of positive things and people. And we want them to also know about their culture, their culture originating in Africa as well as the African-American culture and feel good about all those things, experience those things so that once they do that, then they're able to embrace anybody else's culture because they already understand their own, they know their own, and they feel good about their own. The way we view supporting children and developing a positive racial identity is through it being a core need that children have and not an add-on. So we're not asking teachers to add on a little bit at the end of the class or once once or twice during the year, but make it central to what they do. So I always um, suggest that teachers begin working on themselves and parents as well. So that means not going and grabbing a book and reading a book about race. It means taking time to reflect on their own racial experiences, their own racial history, their own racial, what we call racial narrative. So we have um, a series of questions that we offer people that they can use if they want to on their own. So we ask them, you know, what did you learn about race when you were younger? Where did those messages come from? What kind of impact those message, messages have on you? Have your views about race changed over time? If so, what has caused that change? What things do you want to learn more about? And I've done those, and it's been really eye-opening for me. So just to give you an example of what it might sound like, you know, we asked the question, what messages did you get? Well, I grew up in an all-Black community in the projects in Pittsburgh on the Hill. So I didn't see a whole lot of white people. And... So the messages that I got were from television. Mm. So I watched uh, the news when civil rights activists were being hosed and beaten and dogs set upon them. And that was my one of my earliest memories of um, race. And what I felt was, one, people don't like black people. 
<laughs> There's something yeah. happening here. And second, they don't really have uh, an interest in black people. So the other part of that learning from the media was watching television and seeing very few black people on television. So those were the two original things that kind of informed my understanding of race. And I never talked to anybody about it. My mom and dad never explained it to me. And so for me, what I felt was a need to always talk about it with my children because I know that they would probably have questions. What suggestions do you have for teachers for beginning these conversations in the classroom? Beyond sort of that introspection, understand mm-hmm. and, and, and ask those questions, figure out where you are right mm-hmm. in this. But then what's that bridge to then engaging in the conversation with with students, with young people? Yeah, picture books, picture books, and picture books. Mm. It makes it a lot easier. You pick a book that is, I'll describe it as benign, that simply shows a family that it may be different from the mainstream. So um, I'm a big fan of Ezra Jack Keats' books. He, He wrote Whistle for Willie, Peter's Chair. He was a groundbreaker because he was one of the first people to write a picture book that portrayed a black family. Uh, I think his first books were written in 1969. And you can use a book like that that is just about an ordinary experience. So The Whistle for Willie is about a little boy who's trying to learn how to whistle. He happens to be black. And so a teacher may not be, be prepared to talk about the fact that he's black so she can just expose the children to the book and let them look at it. And she can also ask them to describe what they see and see if the children are ready to talk about the fact that the uh, main character is black. If they feel that they can begin to have these conversations, then they can intentionally talk about the fact that the child is black and ask the kids what they think about that and give them some kind of other extended activities to do to sort of celebrate what that child looks like. Teachers can begin to use books that include within them some kind of conflict around race. So an example of a book like that is a book called Amazing Grace, where it's a Afro-Caribbean girl who is very um, creative, expressive. She's always pretending to be different characters. And there's an opportunity for the children to be in a play, a Peter Pan play. And she wants to be Peter Pan. And they tell her she can't be Peter Pan because she's black and because she's a girl. And she has a conversation with her grandma who encourages her. She practices positive racial socialization by showing her a black ballerina. And Grace is convinced that she can um, uh, try out for the part. She tries out and she becomes Peter Pan. Teachers who are prepared can talk to children about this, this conflict that's in the book Amazing Grace. Was it fair for them to say Grace couldn't be Peter Pan because she was black, because she was a girl? What do you think about that? And then the kids will have a whole lot to say, I'm sure. I'll give you another that's really, really close to home for me. Um, because I was started the Pride um, work uh, four, year, four and a half years ago or so, I would try to use my grandkids as uh, experiments, so (laughs) guinea pigs. And so I would bring some books home and I would read them to them and ask them questions about it, have a conversation with them. And so I decided that I was going to pick this one book. It's called um, Shades of People, I believe. And it's a, a photo picture book of children of all races, ethnicities. And I asked my grandson, who at the time was six, to find for me the person in this book whose face you like the most. 
And so he found a very, very pale white girl who had stark blue eyes and jet black straight hair. And so I said, okay, and let's look and see if we can find anybody else that you like. And we turned some more pages, turned some more pages. And I got to a picture of this really cute African-American girl. She looked like she was around three years old. She had a big dimple and she was holding her arm. I could still see the picture. And I said, oh, um, what about what about her? And he said, she's too dark. Mm. And I thought I was going to die. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with the French film Amelie, but there's a scene where she is in a um, restaurant and something happens and her whole body becomes liquid and she splashes down to the ground. Mm. That's the way I felt when that happened with my grandson. And I just wanted to cry. But I was cool, calm and collected and didn't react in a way that showed him how upset I was. Right, right. And then about a week or two weeks later, he and his older brother came over and I had the book again. I said, do you remember what you said when we when I showed you this picture of the girl? And he said, yeah, I told you that she was too dark. And then I had his older brother come over and put his arm next to the girl's picture to show that he was as dark, if not darker than that girl. And I said, wow, look, he's just the same color as her. And my grandson didn't say anything. He thought for a moment and then he just looked at me with this slow smile on his face, like he understood the message that I was trying to Mm. um, present to him. I use that as an example all the time for teachers because I was stuck like a deer in headlights. And they need to understand that that's going to (laughs) happen, but that you can (laughs) always go back and revisit whatever happened because kids don't forget. And you can sort of keep building on that so that you do make up for what you may you think you may have missed earlier on. The times in which we are living today are unique, to say the least. We're in the midst of this um, hysteria surrounding critical race theory. I imagine that there are more than a few white folk who, if they knew about the work you were doing, they would um, burst into flames. (laughs) Could you share a a thought, a word or two with our teachers specifically uh, who are headed back into the classroom in this charged environment where you have people mobilizing around not saying anything not teaching, not talking about race and racism. Yeah, so the the first thing I would say is to be careful and watch out and take care of yourself. Mm. So I would never encourage teachers to engage in practices in the classroom if it means that they're going to be fired because I don't want that to happen to teachers. Right. But I would also suggest that they try to be as creative as possible in introducing this content in ways that won't get them fired, but will still support children in learning about race. And, and I think part of uh, what will help them to have sort of the fortitude to do that is in understanding the benefits that come from this. So um, when I describe sort of that continuum of children at three months old, you know, noticing someone who looks like them. And then once we get to kindergarten, here are kids embracing the biases. But there's also literature that says that when kids are engaged in ongoing conversations about interracial relationships, it can change their attitudes within weeks. Mm. 
Mm. So they can feel positive about being connected to other people who are different from them if you present it in the right way and you do it consistently and children are open to that. Wow. Yeah. You can see change within weeks. I mean, it doesn't take a lifetime necessarily to begin to move the needle if you're doing this right. Right. Exactly. Mm hmm. Well, look, Dr. White, thank you so much for, for joining us and thank you so much for the work that you are doing and really modeling how we can uh, create and foster and develop positive racial identity uh, among our black children, but really among all children. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that my daughter, Jamila Rice, is a huge fan. And she told me that I better mention her during this interview. Ah, uh, shout out to Jamila. <laughs> Jamila. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Dr. Aisha White is the director of the Pride Program, which is part of the Office of Child Development at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. White is also the executive director of Rights and Responsibilities, a human rights organization creating awareness about issues impacting people of African descent. And of course, she is the proud mother of Jamila Rice, who is also an educator in Pittsburgh. So, Jaden, what did you think? Oh my God, I absolutely love this woman. He's yeah. so knowledgeable. And I thought she made some amazing points about early childhood education, specifically around race. I think I'm really interested in this idea that like children are too young to learn about race. I think it's really interesting that that's even a concept. Like, I definitely understand how maybe children are too young to understand violence, but to like discuss race and um, to expose children to the nuances of race, I don't think that children are too young for that. And I think when we as adults, you know, express our tension around race by not mentioning it or by kind of tiptoeing around it, Kids are very sensitive to that. And I think that that is what really creates the foundation of the ideas that we then like grow up with and the biases that we hold. Totally. Yeah, I think, right, the ways that we lead by example, either to better or to worse, right, that it's one thing to say, oh, no, I believe this and hope that your kids somehow just like magically acquire that. But if you're not actually talking about it and if you're not aware of your own feelings when you're talking about it, then the messages that you're sending to your kid can get mixed up from what you would hope they they would receive. I mean, she says, right, like by three months old, kids are already noticing skin, skin color difference. Yes. So like, you know, if they're older than three months, they are definitely old enough to start to have conversations to start to be aware of, of race. And by two and a half, if you ask a child to choose a playmate, they will choose somebody of the same race as themselves. And that's fascinating mm -hmm. and, and definitely puts to bed the idea that we should hold off or that there is some time, you know, when a kid is 20, that is now the appropriate time to start te teaching about race. Right. When you think about your like your history learning about race, when were you first aware of race? When did you first have conversations about race? Oh, my goodness. I think about this all the time. So um, I grew up in a Puerto Rican household, specifically in a mixed racial Puerto Rican household. Um, what I mean by that is my father's side of the family is more of a mix of indigenous and white. It's very clear in their phenotype. And my mother's side is a mix of indigenous and black. So I grew up with a very racially diverse family. Um, mm. All of my cousins, I have a ton of cousins, as many Latinos do. And none of us really were the same shade. So I didn't really think about race until I was in school because it wasn't something that was a defining feature of like me or my family. Yeah. I also grew up in the Bronx. So um, I was more accustomed to seeing people 
who were like me in my predominantly black and Latino neighborhood. So yeah, I won't say that I wasn't aware of it, but it just wasn't a, a, a thing to me. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to school, um, I went to a public school in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. So my school was very racially diverse. Then in middle school, I went to a charter school that was predominantly black. And that was when I think I started noticing race, which it sounds very late in the game. I think actually my perception of race as a Latino was more in my language than my like phenotype. Mm. Because when I went to that charter school, it was predominantly African immigrants, not necessarily like generationally African-Americans, but mm-hmm. um, the Bronx is a very like immigrant community. So right. lots of first, second generation immigrants from African countries who knew of their nationalities and stuff like that. So again, I didn't really associate blackness with one identity. With like, I kind of saw the diaspora in that. Right. And then the Latinos, they were maybe one or two of us that were much lighter, but I was more concerned with the fact that I didn't speak Spanish like the Dominican kids. Um, mm. Yeah, so that was my discomfort with my race. Then in sixth grade, we actually learned about the civil rights movement. Mind you, most of the teachers at that school were black and most of the students in my class were black. And we were learning from a textbook called Grace Abounding. And that textbook is amazing. I like fell in love with it as a sixth grader. But it very much tells history through the black perspective. And I was learning about black history in America in a classroom of predominantly black students by a a black teacher. And we were writing essays and, and having these open discussions. There was not an ounce of hesitation in what we talked about. So that was when I first started learning about negative prejudice and bias against Black people in this country. And were there white kids in that class? No. Yeah. Yeah, I can't think of any. I don't think so. Functionally a non-white space. Right. Functionally a yeah. non-white space, definitely. Yeah. So that was your elementary and middle school experiences. Right. But I believe things changed pretty dramatically for high school. Tell us about that. So I get into this school in the city um, I actually got a standing ovation from my class when I, you know, got in because it was this whole like oh, wow. idea of like Jaden's making it out. He's going to this great school or whatever. But again, I didn't really have an association with race. I knew that everyone there was white because I had done a shadow day, but not everyone, most, a lot of people, but it didn't phase me. I was so excited because it it was a beautiful building. It was like, everyone looked so happy. I was like, oh my, I remember I did the shadow day and I went back and I cried to my mom that I had to go to school the next day. Um, which is horrible right. and very bratty, but whatever. Um, <laughs> um, but right. anyway. I'm sure the differences were stark between this yes, you know, all-black and like, brown school in the Bronx and then this private, almost entirely yeah. white privileged school on the Upper East Side. You, you just see the disparities that exist. Exactly. Time. I remember the biggest reason I was crying, this is why I say it was bratty, but actually listening to the school lunch episode that you guys have, yeah, like so hit home for me because um, I went on my shadow day and they had buffalo wings like for, for <laughs> they were serving like hot buffalo wings for lunch yeah. and i was actually beside myself like everything was just their cafeteria was i, I mean it was ridiculous and i went back and i was like yeah. i don't want to eat the food i don't want to <laughs> but yeah so i i started at the school i absolutely loved it. i had rose colored glasses it was like the emerald city to me because i right. you know had a reason to be in manhattan the upper east side is you know a very nice neighborhood and everyone around me had money and like i just I wanted to be like all of them. But as I spent more time in the school, I naturally gravitated towards people who looked like me. So um, it just so happens that when you go to a school that small, there were only a handful of us who were of color. So we just gravitated towards each other. 
And then I became aware of like a fishbowl sort of situation where we were like almost being observed by like the rest of our classmates Mm -hmm. because we were different, you know, and I was used to, I guess, being different racially, you know, for being lighter, but not for being darker. Um, And that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was yeah. very, very interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. So you you kind of had this like racial evolution, the power of being in a space that was definitely not white, that like ha- allowed for kind of a range of racial identities, but the hierarchy didn't necessarily show itself in quite the same ways. Mm-hmm. And to bring it back to this conversation with Dr. White, you know, she talks about this. It's not just about kind of like setting kids into spaces, but you actually have to have a conversation with them. And like right. how those conversations start is really important. Yeah, I think a really important point that she makes is sort of advising parents and teachers to gauge where students are about race by asking them about race-related things, as opposed to projecting your own adult opinions and biases about what you want them to know and what you want them to feel about race. And that will kind of give you clarity on, on how you speak to children about these things. Yeah, as, as a starting point, because I mean, I want to teach my kids to think and feel certain things about race, right? Like I do want to lead them, you know, hopefully to something that is maybe counter to the broad messages that they might be receiving from society. I want them to be aware of those messages, but you have to meet kids where they are. And the best way to do that, like she says, is just sort of start by asking them, what do they notice? What are they aware of? And I think the other thing that, that, that was so powerful to me about her story, you know, she, she asks her kid, what does he think about this, this young African-American girl? And he says, oh, no, no, I don't want to play with her. She's too dark. And and in that moment, she knows that she's just like not in a place to have a conversation. You know, she talks right. about like melting, like in the film Amelie. And it was so mm-hmm. such a powerful metaphor. But but what I loved is that then she was like, it's OK, I'm going to calm down and then I'm going to come back. Because I think that certainly I feel this tension. I know other other white parents for sure feel this tension, which is like. I have to say all the things all at once and I have to get them all right. And if I don't, right. I'm going to like wreck my kid. And this goes back to what you were saying at the beginning, right? Like the, the tension that we bring to it makes us really bad at doing this. And so if I go in super stressed out, I'm like, oh my God, I got to say all the right things. And then the kid doesn't get it. I'm like, well, see, this is why we can't have conversations about race. She must be too young. He must be too young. I can't do it. We've got we've to abandon ship. And I thought Dr. White's point about going back come back in two days, you come back in a week, you come back in a month, the kids are still processing those things. You've planted a little seed and then you can go back and you can check on it and say, oh, well, you know what, what if we kind of nudge this in this way or what if we revisit this or whatever? Right. I think what's most important about the way that she resolved that was how she emphasized that we can't control the content of what kids are consuming in their lives. And so you can't control the content of their thoughts, but you can definitely control the approach And so that's, I think what she was trying to get at is that we're not supposed to be molding these children necessarily to, to have particular thoughts, but to think a certain way and to think critically about, about, you know, what they're presented with. And so she didn't even have to mention explicitly in her example that his brother was black or that he's black. All she did was point it out and she didn't say anything. She let him come to, she was molding more than just planting a thought. She was guiding you know an experience that molds that that critical thinking and i think that that's what she was talking about promoting with asking children where they are especially in the classroom is like positioning them as the thought leaders and as they grow up that's extremely important because i think like nowadays when we talk about racism and injustice and inequity a lot of people adults black white you know across the spectrum 
regardless of their position on on those things, they feel almost defeated, like 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 it this thing that just exists, and mm-hmm. that you know we have to learn to live with it. And mm-hmm. that is true to a certain extent, but it's ve- it's a very defeatist mentality. And yeah. I think the benefit of what she was getting at of, of of guiding these these kids to think for themselves and to to develop their own ideas about that will benefit them as adults to feel more empowered to lead that 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 cultural shift. Yeah, that's so powerful because I right there there's hope in that, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, because you certainly can look at race relations and say it's been 400 years like we we can't solve this. Not to say that solving racism is easy in any way. And if you do these things that Dr. White talks about, if you talk to kids when they're really young, you give them not just kind of a broad diverse you know, media diet to consume, a broad, diverse set of representations to look at and to relate to, but also talk to them about how do they think about these things, about how do they understand the messages they're getting. That is how, you know, not to say that like the next generation or the generation after that is the one who has to fix it, but like that is how we make progress generation after generation, right? And the, the other thing that that feels relevant in this example, like the the way she kind of resolved this you know, kind of crisis for her of, of her kids saying that girl's too dark involved like an actual human interaction. Right. And this is this is one of the things that I, I think I think all the work that she talks about is so important. And I know that there is a tendency among white parents for sure to look to the library they have and say, like, OK, I'm going to diversify the library. I'm going to make sure my kid sees lots of diverse characters in the books that they read. I'm going to make sure my kid knows about history. I'm going to like embrace this piece of talking about race at an early age and then continue to keep kids in racially homogenous spaces. And I think that the power of her example, which is saying like, look at your brother's skin, look at the skin of this girl, let you see this requires some actual human interaction. I think like part of the right. the work of integrated schools is like, you have to actually be in community. You actually have to come and know it is super important to have more diverse books. It is super important to expose your kids to the ideas. And I think it's probably insufficient if you really want to kind of create a sense of shared humanity, if you really want to create a sense where your kids grow up and understand themselves to be equal to people who don't look like them requires them actually being in community with other people. Yeah, I think a big point there is like allowing room for mistakes, especially as like children, but even as adults, I think a lot of hesitation among white people that I that I observe, white people who are against white supremacy and who want to, you know, better the world and, you know, like create a more right. equitable world, they're afraid to make mistakes. And so mm-hmm. when they're parenting these children, they don't want their children to make mistakes. Right? Because it it comes from from a from a from a loving place, from a place of, of good. And so they shelter their children from you know the possibility of walking out and exercising racial bias or racial prejudice right. to other children or even to adults and that's what keeps them maybe in that silo i think like we all have to be more gracious but i at the same time we also have to realize that people are very gracious especially people of color the population of color in this country is very we talk often about being like fed up like all of these things and those things are true but at the same time like are we've been fighting for generations and generations for equality, equity. And so we are also a very patient people mm-hmm. and it's ingrained in our culture and in, in our, you know, survival in this country. So, right. I mean, obviously don't go out and be racist, but, <laughs> right. but that but is not the message we want you that's to take. That's not the listeners. message. <laughs> that's definitely not the message, but, but don't let that shelter you or be an excuse to shelter 
you right. or your or your child yeah. and and be gracious with yourself and and trust that people will be gracious with you because that's how you learn right i mean as long as you're learning and you know as long as you're learning yeah that part is important i think the other thing is like the the we so often project our own discomfort onto our kids yeah and this three-year-old had this like growth in racial understanding at the age of three but my guess is i don't know the kid i don't know dr white but my guess is from the story he was not like racked with guilt about the realization that he had you know which speaks again to the power of talking to young kids because you know for that same leap for that same realization to happen for a 24 year old is going to require so much more undoing it's going to require so much more like self-reflection it's going to require so much more potential for guilt and for feeling like distress inside and i think we project that we imagine like well what would it take for me to make this leap that's going to feel so destabilizing that's going to feel so uh, like i don't know i'm going to feel i'm going to feel uncomfortable about that i don't want my kid to feel uncomfortable so i'm just going to like keep them from having to do that but like when they're three they don't feel uncomfortable they're like oh what right oh cool all right got it what's next right. let's go exactly. and now that's like internalized in them that's like part of part of who they are and actually like you asked me earlier about my own experience in my family I see it all the time because in my family, we have a ton of like little cousins, right? And they're coming up and they're learning about race within their family by interacting with each other because they know that they're family, but they're not the same race. They're not the right. same color. Like half of them are white and half of them are not. For example, like some of my younger cousins from Ohio will come and they're white and they like will ask about our hair, like me, me and my sisters. One of my cousins said that I looked like a poodle uh, because of my hair. <laughs> and obviously like I was taken aback. Like I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> I can't on. believe you just said that to me. Yep. But it was like in the, in the context of her like three-year-old mind, that was the funniest joke that she could make, right. you know? And like, I had an immediate reaction because I've been trained to, you know, see a white person saying that to me and feel a type of way about it, but right. I almost had to check my my own bias rather than hers and say like, this may have demonstrated that she doesn't have any bias towards my hair, and so she doesn't she's not aware of what she just said, right? You know, but I've been ingrained with these insecurities about you know what that means. Well, and I mean, again, to the power of relationships, you know her exactly. You know that her intent was not to be nasty, right? That her intent was not to be derogatory. That she did not think that it was like you know, a way for her to exert her superiority over you. But it came from a place of genuine love because you were in relationship with her. And we laughed and I was too stunned to speak. But my sister, you know, my sister kind of checked her a little. She was like, you know, that's not appropriate to say to, you know, someone like that. But um, it's grace and it's learning. Yeah. And and so much easier for your little cousin than right than for me right like if, if i were to make that joke wildly inappropriate you and i would have to have right. we would have to have a real long conversation right. about it. An hr right <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly yeah yeah exactly yeah and i think right yeah the earlier the earlier we start the better right there was a moment where dr white talked about anti-blackness in the media and what i liked is that she takes it a step beyond just anti-blackness but it goes into a demonstrated lack of interest in Black people and Black culture. And I think that that lack of interest, you know, is also something to look at because even if you consider yourself not racist or anti-racist or whatever, a lot of times like that, that covert racism still manifests itself in that lack of interest. Like, you know, if you don't seek anything out, you're going to get a predominantly whitewashed right. media cycle. But awareness is so powerful yeah. Well, I mean, it goes back to, to where we started, right? Which is like 
the power of a shift in mindset for a kid around race yes. is really what you're after. It's not about exactly. the outcome. It's not about the like, here's what you should think, but it's about the, you know, sort of sparking that curiosity, generating comfort with these topics. Right. Like um, earlier, I was talking about the Grace Abounding book. And w- what I love so much about that book was like, it went so beyond just the horrors of like, you know, slavery or racism in this country. It genuinely demonstrated an interest in the culture of blackness in America and, right, you know, the diaspora. And in many ways, like when we teach about slavery, we teach it from the lens of like this fascination with violence and, and, and racism in the Jim Crow era, right? Like, yeah. like segregation, we were fascinated with the mistakes of white people, but not necessarily in the oppression of black people. Yeah, it is still a white-centered story. Even if even right. if we are willing to look directly at the atrocities committed by white people, we are still looking at the actions of white people. And we can't excuse the actions of white people, but the story is so much richer if you can actually be curious about everybody else's stories. Right. To me, when I think back to Grace Abounding and I think back to like my early education about race, those stories hold as much weight as when we learned about the civil rights movement. Right. And that, to me, is what, first of all, helps me cope with being a person of color learning about those things, those atrocities. But also, you know, I've kept that with me and like, you know, grown with it. Obviously, like, I've also been socialized around people of color my whole life, but it definitely helped foster that for me even more. And I think white students should not be excluded from that experience because it's a wonderful experience to to learn about the beauty of of other cultures. I mean, when you shelter white students from that out of fear of like racism, you're robbing them. You're robbing the white children yeah. of so much beauty and, and I mean, history and culture. Like it's, it, there's so much more than, than just violence, oppression. You create that association through, through sheltering. So don't do that. That's right. Well, we'll put a link to Grace Abounding in the show notes as well. Jaden, so glad to have you on board. Listeners, you'll be hearing more from Jaden. And yeah, just really, really glad to have you. Listeners, if you appreciate this work, head on over to the Patreon, throw us a few bucks each month to keep this work happening. Yeah, if you like this conversation, be sure to spread the word, like, share, follow us on social media, seek us out. Great. Jaden, it was a pleasure to be in this with you as I tried to know better and do better. Likewise, thank you so much for having me. And we are going to go out with the credits from Teaching Hard History so you can hear about all the amazing people who made this episode possible. Teaching Hard History is a podcast from Learning for Justice, the education arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center, helping teachers and schools prepare students to be active participants in a diverse democracy. Learning for Justice provides free teaching materials about slavery, Reconstruction, the Civil Rights Movement, and more. You can find award-winning films and classroom-ready texts at learningforjustice.org. Most students leave high school without an understanding of the Jim Crow era and its continuing relevance. This podcast is part of an effort to change that. In our fourth season, we put Jim Crow under the spotlight, examining its history and lasting impact. Thanks to Dr. White and Dr. Baptist for sharing their insights with us. This podcast was produced by Mary Quintus and senior producer Shay Shackelford. Russell Gregg is our associate producer. Music Reconstructed is produced by Barrett Golding. And Corey Collins provides content guidance. Amelia Gregg is our intern. Kate Schuster is the series creator. And our managing producer is Miranda LaFond. If you like what you've heard, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And let us know what you think. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We always appreciate your feedback. I'm Dr. Bethany J. 
professor of history at Salem State University and your host for Teaching Hard History.